0: Welcome to Disinformation Wars, a project of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm AFPC Senior Vice President Elon Berman. Disinformation Wars is a series of conversations with officials, experts, and practitioners designed to take you behind the scenes of the struggle for hearts and minds of global publics that's now taking place around the world. It's a contest being waged by Russia, China, Iran, and other actors, and the stakes could not be any higher. Russia's war on Ukraine continues to roil Europe. For two months now, the Kremlin has spearheaded a brutal military campaign against its Western neighbor. The objectives of Russia's war efforts have changed. Initially, Russia's offensive was billed as a special military operation designed to both demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. As the conflict has dragged on, however, Russia's goals have actually gotten bigger. Russia's campaign is, quote, designed to put an end to the reckless expansion and the reckless course towards the total dominance of the United States and the rest of the Western countries under them in the international arena, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, laid out in an early April interview with state television channel Russia24. But the war is actually having the opposite effect. It has breathed new life into the NATO alliance and revived interest in membership among countries that are worried that they might be the next targets of Moscow's aggression. One of those is Finland, which has announced plans to apply formally for NATO membership as early as this coming June. Another is Sweden, which has historically been skeptical of the benefits of NATO membership, but where a majority of the population now backs joining the Atlantic Alliance and doing so in the near future. Those are outcomes that Russia fears, which is why the Kremlin has threatened the Nordic states, including by deploying missile systems to its common border with Finland. It has also become a new theme for Russian disinformation and the country's propagandists, ideologues, and fake news peddlers are now actively messaging to countries like Sweden and Finland about NATO aggression, Russia's inevitable response, and the dangers they face if they join the alliance. I recently talked to Molly Saltzkog about all this. Molly is a senior intelligence analyst at the Sufan Group and a research fellow at the Sufan Center. Her areas of expertise include counterterrorism and geopolitics, Chinese foreign policy, and disinformation. In her role at the Sufan Group, Molly provides expert research, analysis, and consultancy for projects in the private and in the public sector, chiefly focused on the threat posed by malign information manipulation. She's published in Foreign Affairs, The National Interest, War on the Rocks, and many other publications, and frequently provides expert commentary to the media on matters relating to national security. Molly, thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's start with the anti-NATO narratives that we see emerging in places like Sweden. What are the dominant themes of this
1: campaign? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. And before I dive into that, I just want to give your listeners a little bit of a background you mentioned, you know, at the Sufan Group, we work encountering what we would categorize as malign information manipulation operations, such as state-backed or state-amplified disinformation campaigns. And so naturally, since even before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24, we were closely monitoring what we would call dis and misinformation themes and narratives coming from likely Russia-backed or aligned actors on Ukraine or catering to a European audience or US audience. One distinct trend that we observed throughout this time is how these likely Russia-backed or aligned disinformation campaigns are espousing anti-US, anti-EU, anti-NATO sentiments, and how these are deployed actually to a global audience in many different languages. So obviously, to return to her questions, you know, when we think about that the Swedish and Finnish NATO application, potential applications, I should say, for a NATO membership they might be submitted in the coming weeks or months no one really knows but we know that they're edging towards potentially applying we wanted to look at what likely russian backed or aligned actors how they may seek to target the swedish population or if they're already targeting the swedish population with disinformation campaigns so we looked further into those narratives that are already out there and that we could see in our analysis being leveraged to a smaller extent, not a full viral campaign, but that Russia is definitely, or Russia-backed uh, aligned actors are definitely trying to test them out to different degrees. So back to your question, which was about what are these specific narratives? The first one that we looked at as, as having potential impact among Swedish online audiences, this narrative that NATO is a war alliance. And this narrative pushes specific and explicit anti-NATO conspiracy theories and disinformation about How Sweden will be used as an instrument for war, uh, for NATO expansion, for illegal wars around the world, and will be, you know, forced to partake in war crimes at the behest of NATO and its leading power, the United States of America. So it's very anti-NATO, very explicitly anti-U.S. narrative. The second one is a narrative that goes something along the lines of Sweden's NATO bid will prompt Russia to place nuclear missiles in the Baltics. And it furthers this idea that a NATO membership wouldn't make Sweden more safe, it would make Sweden less safe, because there will be, Russia will be forced to place these nuclear weapons in the Baltics. But, you know, (laughs) they fail to mention in this narrative that Russia already has a significant amount of sophisticated weaponry, including, you know, nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad, which is on the Baltic Sea. And lastly, and I'll stop there, we have a very insidious narrative that is actually a classic disinformation narrative that's copy and pasted into different situations by both state and non-state actors. And it's this narrative that NATO is run by the global cabal. And uh, maybe your listeners are are familiar with this narrative. It's been, you know, it's anti-Semitic in nature. Originally, it's grounded in anti-Semitism. We've seen it proliferate here in the United States, online during pandemic or vaccine skeptic circles. For those who are not familiar with this narrative, it's a conspiracy theory that invokes examples of wealthy industry leaders, elites, controlling war, peace, politics, the economy, and society to the detriment of the average person, whether it's the average Swede or the average American or the average Brit. And in the context of this anti-NATO sentiment, it claims that, you know, NATO is a organization run by a Jewish and globalist elites, the global cabal, quote unquote, And in the Swedish context specifically, it has been catered to involve very prominent Swedish industry leaders and alleged that they are part of this global cabal and that their interest is to be part of NATO. So it has this local flavor that the Swedish online audiences can relate to.
0: Okay, so I wanna drill down on this a little bit more based on the research that you and your team have conducted. Because I'm curious, who are the principal actors in this effort? What are their objectives? What are what are they trying to achieve here?
1: So when we looked at these um, these different narratives, some are what we would call more organic, so they're potentially being amplified more by by Russian-backed or aligned actors. But then we also have more seeded narratives. So the second narrative that I mentioned about the you know Sweden will be less safe and there will be nuclear missiles placed in the Baltics because of this application that was actually seeded by Russian government officials with statements and was amplified by Russia Today and other known disinformation outlets. But in essence, we have the whole spectra. In our analysis, we found that we have both public statements by the Kremlin and Russian state media. But we also found, for example, in the first narrative, I mentioned that NATO is a war alliance. We did find evidence where we believe to ha- with a high degree of confidence that these are Likely Russian backed or aligned bots and other influence networks on social media actually to a not a incredibly high um, volume yet, but that are that are actually in Swedish trying to reach the Swedish audience with this message. I think your second question on objectives and what they're trying to achieve is actually very, very interesting. And so obviously we think about a a clear foreign policy objective from the Russian Federation point of view would be that they wouldn't want Sweden or Finland for that matter to apply for NATO membership. But when it comes to these disinformation and other forms of influence campaigns that we, we have found traces of online, One goal is certainly to, in some ways, influence public opinion on the question, and it would be great if they would achieve that many Swedes would then be vehemently opposed to this NATO application for X, Y, or C reason. But that is very hard to achieve, and we are seeing that they're not being very effective with that. But another one is to create enough polarizing discord on the topic so that public opinion on a potential NATO application is at least or in some ways polarized as much as possible. And so that might cause certain segments of the population to have less confidence in what the government is doing and what democracy is bringing. And we saw this in our analysis that many of these narratives that I mentioned, the three primary narratives that I mentioned, within those, there are different messages that are tailored to cater to different segments of the Swedish population. and this is where it gets very insidious and quite interesting. So, for example, the NATO is run by the global cabal disinformation narrative. We saw that it's being, it's resonating with and it's being perpetrated by both far left and far right users. So you're getting two polar opposites amplifying this and being against each other, but they're spreading the same narrative. And then with the NATO as a war lines narrative, for example, we saw that certain artifacts that we analyzed amplify conspiracy theories about NATO abuses and secret bases in the Balkan countries. That's obviously trying to cater to people in Sweden who have Balkan heritage, but also like very dangerous far-right extremists, violent far-right neo-Nazi organizations that have transnational connections and affinities with like-minded organizations in the Balkans, specifically in Serbia. And then other artifacts within this NATO is a war alliance narrative were actually pushed primarily in Arabic. And they were pushing more anti-U.S. narratives and some anti-NATO narratives about atrocities committed in the Middle East, but displaying images of, say, Abu Ghraib and so forth. And they're trying to likely cater to Arabic-speaking immigrant populations in Sweden.
0: I think your point about the objective being the denigration of trust in democratic government is very important because it bears noting it's actually very similar to what we saw here in the United States, in the 2016 political cycle and in the 2020 political cycle. The idea here is less about picking winners and losers and choosing a candidate that you like. It's much more about undermining faith and trust in the system itself. And you see this happening not not just here in the United States, but you see this happening in Europe as well. So speaking of Europe, I find what you're saying very interesting because it's a clear sign that Russian propaganda is evolving. There are some elements that are familiar, but it's clearly evolving, and it's evolving out of necessity because traditional outlets like RT and Sputnik have now been banned from Europe, and it's harder for Moscow to influence European publics on the traditional issues that it was messaging on before. But as you're pointing out, necessity is the mother of invention. So we're now seeing Russian disinformation move on to new themes and new subjects. Is that right?
1: Yeah sometimes they're reinventing the playbook. We saw that with, for example, the very, you know, insidious U.S. uh, secret biolapse narrative centered on Ukraine that, you know, both Russia and China were pushing, including officials, uh, political officials and state-affiliated media. And and that is a classic recycling. They've used that in Georgia. They've used that everywhere uh, in, in other places too. But I think you're right when when we think about state actors like the Russian Federation utilizing propaganda, censorship, disinformation, other influence tactics. I think it's very important to distinguish between their efforts at targeting domestic audiences and how they're being very versatile in targeting different global audiences to your point where it's trying to erode trust and so forth. So uh, two points for for your listeners that that I've been thinking a lot about The overall expert assessment has been that when it comes to the war in Ukraine, Ukraine has won the, quote, information war against Russia, at least to a Western audience. But I don't think that we can let our guard down yet. As as our analysis and and assessment of of these narratives that they're testing out within a Swedish audience, there are likely going to be more and, and other events happening that will be an opportunity for Russia to exploit. Secondly, our assessment, I think, is very important to point out that n- none of the three narratives that, we, that I mentioned and that we tracked, actually, we didn't assess them to have likely resonance within a broader adult online audience in, in, in Sweden. So in short, they're not that effective, which I think we should see as a very positive sign. But here, here's my caveat to that. I think there's a misconception that a disinformation campaign from a foreign adversary needs to be convincing to be effective, that it needs to push the needle on a political issue or a, or for a political candidate or, or whatever it may be. I think actually a lot of times, as long as it's confusing, it's effective because remember that old saying, you know, if you can't convince them, confuse them. And I think what we're seeing coming out of a Russian, likely Russian disinformation campaigns or backed by Russia is that confusion, either polarization or the confusing of facts.
0: I think that's a very important point, actually, because if you remember back to the tragic downing of the Malaysian airliner over Ukraine using Russian hardware back in 2014, the Russian narratives that spun out in the wake of that incident were intended more than anything else to muddy the waters, to cause inaction rather than to cause action, to create enough confusion and reasonable doubt that international investigators, international audiences didn't really know where to start looking. And I think it's, it's interesting that they're they're sort of they're using that same d- dynamic now to maybe to galvanize action, but galvanizing inaction is actually very important as well,
1: right? To, to create, generate ambivalence, And I think this is a good good place to also mention to to the listeners about, so the Sufan group's philosophy when it comes to counter disinformation narratives and other types of influence operations by by state actors and non-state actors is actually, we're not in the business of evaluating the truth or what is true or what's not true out there. Because our goal has ultimately been to assess the impact of, say, a likely Russian-backed, or amplified disinformation campaign, because we found throughout the years when we've monitored and analyzed that noise and volume alone, which is often created by what we talk about, you know, inauthentic amplification through bot networks, sock puppet accounts, they won't necessarily give us a realistic indication of what the actual impact of a campaign is. Is it confusion? Is it polarization? Is it that it's premeditated false flag operations by Russia? But If a campaign is actually resonating with people or serving to confuse people enough that they don't know what the truth is or not, that's when we should be worried about something. So that's how we developed our proprietary AI and machine learning powered model together with our data partner, Limbic, to not only see how viral something is, but also to discern how believable it might be within a specific Segment like, say, US adult online audiences or Swedish adult online audiences. Because if something is believable, people are more likely to take some form of action, whether it's online or offline.
0: And there's a broader context here, too, because Russian messaging isn't taking place in a vacuum, it's aligned with other parts of Russian foreign policy. And here I'm specifically thinking about the growing strategic alignment between Russia and China. In recent months, we've seen Moscow and Beijing draw closer together on a range of issues. So talk about that a little bit. How is Beijing reacting to the Ukraine war and what's it doing with regard to Russian propaganda and disinformation?
1: This is a fascinating topic, I think. Uh, And the background here is that obviously since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen Chinese disinformation capabilities really increases in its efficacy, in its global reach, in its insidiousness. It's almost like part of the Chinese playbook is just copying the Russian playbook or taking at least a page out of it and and molding it to fit Beijing's political objectives. And so going back to your question on Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, since the start of it, we've seen China attempting to walk a tightrope publicly, neither outwardly condemning nor supporting Russia and, you know, abstaining from security council votes and trying to position themselves in a mediating role so that they can be seen as enhancing its reputation as a rising responsible power and all these buzzwords that that china are using to position the, themselves against the united states in the international scene but we've actually been tracking what they've been doing more covertly with their disinformation campaigns and that's where i think we need to focus in understanding china's true intentions and we've seen that not only has the censorship apparatus of china which is notorious been very busy since february 24th taking down hashtags and chinese accounts that are condemning the war in ukraine and and expressing concern about human suffering and china's also allowed what we believe uh, with a high confidence to be Influence networks, bots, stock puppet accounts, but also Chinese state-backed media online, they've actually parroted Russian disinformation narratives about everything from NATO expansion to what we talked about, you know, those ridiculous disinformation narratives spread by Russia about U.S. biolabs in Ukraine. And, you know, we saw in the second week of March, when China really jumped on that U.S. biolabs disinformation narrative, Almost 9% of all English language artifacts within the BioLabs narrative across all social media platforms that we monitor came from what we assess to be likely China-aligned or backed actors. So not a small percentage at all.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And it raises a very logical question, which is, how do we push back? How can NATO countries and everybody else effectively counter Russian disinformation and adjacent Chinese disinformation? In your work, you talk a lot about the need to, quote unquote, pre-bunk narratives. So explain to the audience, what does that mean and
1: how's it done? At the Sufan group, we, we believe that if something is believable and it resonates with an audience, it will have a bigger impact online and also potentially offline that will cause offline action as well. So we're trying to look at these narratives that we're seeing pushed by foreign actors, state and non-state actors, because you know terrorist organizations also use disinformation for very insidious uh, reasons, and trying to predict how much of an impact they may have, say, within a U.S. online audience. So we can actually quantifiably assess the risk that a narrative may pose to the U.S. And I think this is very important. Because then we can see how narratives are trending within a US audience or a European audience or a Scandinavian audience. And that would give policymakers and leaders and, and governments the ability to what we call pre-bunk narratives. And we we saw this happening actually before the invasion, full-scale invasion of Ukraine. In February, the Biden administration and our European allies, specifically the United Kingdom of, and other European countries, actually went out and publicly debunked and, and pre-bunked some of these disinformation campaigns, some of the false flag operations that Russia was planning and warned populations ahead of time that these were coming out or that they were being targeted by them. And, you know, I'd say there are still narratives out there that, that, that probably should have been pre-bunked before, but at least we saw that some of Russia's plans of using disinformation narratives and this type of tactic was actually significantly reduced. That impact was reduced when the U.S. was leading in what we call pre-bunking.
0: That's fascinating stuff. Molly, thank you so much for taking the time for sharing the insights uh, on a truly important topic.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Disinformation Wars. To learn more about the American Foreign Policy Council and our work on public diplomacy, visit us online at www.afpc.org, And as always, we hope you'll join us again next time.